following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Um, The title of the message that I want to share with you this Easter celebration is the one we have waited for. And uh, before I get into the scriptures that I want to look at and into the message itself, I wanted to begin with a story told uh, by this man named Bobby Stoddard uh, from uh, Vermont. And so I'm only going to share about uh, five minutes of his story and then afterwards, we'll go on. So uh, it's not a video. So I, this is the first time I've done this when I preached, is just share an audio clip. So it made me feel kind of strange just looking at an image and listening to a guy's voice without uh, seeing his face. But just go ahead and take a listen to the story that he shared. And my favorite winter in Vermont was 1999. Um, it was a big snow year, and I was a part-time carpenter and a full-time ski bum. And the other thing, other than being a big snow year, that made that a really amazing year was um, our local ski mountain, Bolton Valley, went bankrupt. And Bolton Valley is at the top of a steep, windy mountain road, and the only reason you would go up there is to go skiing. And if they're not running the lifts, no one's going up there, Uh, except for me and some of my friends, because we like to hike for it, because if if you love skiing, you love powder. Powder is the church. And if powder's the church, then the holy grail is fresh tracks. And if you're hiking up a, an abandoned ski mountain, you're going to get fresh tracks all day. And we did. We got them all winter long. We would hike that mountain. And fresh tracks are when you ski down and nobody has skied in front of you. It's sublime. Uh, so I was up there one Saturday, and I was actually just with just my dogs, and I was alone. And... Uh, I hiked the mountain, and I got my turns in, and I get down to the bottom of the mountain, and between the bottom of the chairlift and the parking lot, there is a little gully, and I'm just, I want to maximize my vertical, so I, I just drop down into this gully, and I spin around, so I'm facing up the mountain, just to see how far back my, dog, my dogs were, and I undo my bindings, and, and, I, and I look up, and I see my dogs over here, and then, and I see something over here, and it's, it's a mother and a father and a little baby boy, and uh, they're about 100 yards up the mountain, and they're playing with sleds. And I watch as the father takes this little 18-month-old boy and, and set him in this little red plastic sled face first and slide him just you know, about seven feet to the mother who bends down. And I still don't know how she does this, but she, she misses him. He goes right through her legs. And in an instant, this kid is rocketing down the mountain and the dad jumps in his sled and he talks, takes off after him, but he, he's never going to catch him. And this is a ski mountain. This is not a backyard hill. And the kid's flying down the mountain, and as soon as I see him take off, I start running. And I'm running in the direction that he's headed, but as soon as I take that first step, I can no longer see him because I'm down in this gully and I can just barely see them over the lip of snow. And as I'm charging through this gully, it's, it's getting deeper and deeper, and it's starting to approximate more of a ravine. And I run to where I think this kid is headed, and and I haven't seen him in a while. 
But I know he's still coming because I can hear his mother shrieking, this primal scream, screaming, Parker, jump out, Parker, Parker. And I look up and there's a steel pipe sticking out of the ground. It's a snow-making pylon. And now I'm sitting, looking at this pipe, and I'm waiting, and I'm listening to this mother. And then all of a sudden, there he is, this little kid. He's clinging to the front of the sled, his little face. And he shoots off this cornice of snow, and he misses that pipe by just an inch. His sled goes flying, and he does a, he does a flip in the air, and, and I just catch him, like, right out of the air. <laughs> and now, yeah. And now I've got him. And he's in my arms, and I'm looking down at him. He's little, and I'm like, hey, <laughs> that looked fun. How you doing? And he's just owl eyes at me. And then the dad skids to a stop, and the dad is agog, because they, the parents never saw me. They didn't see me snowboard down. They didn't see me start to run. He just saw his little guy just... <sighs> and he's staring at me, and he says, who are you? <laughs> and I just look up, I say, I'm, I'm Bobby. And, and he says, well, where did you come from? I say, you know, I was, I was just here. And, and then the mother shows up, and she tumbles down through the snow, and she comes up to me, and, and, I, and I hand her Parker, and, and this woman clearly wants this baby. And she takes the child, and she just crumples. And she's wailing and crying. And of course now Parker's crying because she's crying. And I'm like, why isn't she soothing the kid? Like he was fine when I gave her a perfectly good baby. And now he's crying. And I really can't even fathom why she's not like, I don't know. So the dad starts talking to me and he says something. He says, Bobby, do you read the Bible? I'm like, no, no. He says, well, I read the Bible. And I don't believe that God does anything without a purpose. And I believe God put you here today to catch my son. You know, and I'm not a big God guy. And, uh, but, I don't know, someone says something like that to you, you, you know, you take stock. And I start replaying it and sort of the magnitude of it. And then I look up and I look at that steel pipe coming out of the ground and I picture Parker's little face flying by it. As you can tell for that part of the story you heard, uh, Bobby Stoddard is not a believer. He's not a Christian. Um, and yet what he experienced that day on that abandoned ski slope um, made him wonder, was it really only dumb luck that led me to be there at that very spot where he would catch that child flying through the air off of his sled? Um, he begins to wonder, is there a greater meaning to the things that we experience in this life beyond just random chance? Uh, even if you don't necessarily believe in God, I think we all go through experiences like that in life, don't we? Where it can be hard to avoid the sense that things just don't happen randomly all the time. That Maybe there is a feeling that something was orchestrated by a higher power. Um, and yet the flip side of that is that much of life can feel random, can't it? That things don't always line up so perfectly like that story that we just heard. And we 
are often left in these days of confusion, of trying to make sense of the world that we live in. Philip Yancey writes, To me, the great divide separating belief and unbelief reduces down to one simple question. Is the visible world around us all there is? Those unsure of the answer to that question, whether they approach it from the, re- the regions of belief or unbelief, live in the borderlands. They wonder whether faith in an unseen world is wishful thinking. Does faith delude us into seeing a world that doesn't exist? Or does it reveal the existence of a world we cannot see without it? Maybe you've found yourself in these borderlands of belief. Is there a greater meaning to this life? Or is this material world all there is? Could there be a whole other realm that I cannot access apart from faith? For this Easter celebration, I want to examine a particular issue related to what I'm talking about in this introduction, about this realm of what we could call biblical prophecy. Particularly, these prophecies spoken many years ago that predicted the life of this man named Jesus who walked the earth 2,000 years ago. And the question that I want to pose to you this morning is simply this. Is it possible that the events of Jesus' life were foretold hundreds of years earlier? And that they were given through the voices of many people who came before him so that when he would arrive on the scene, the people would be able to recognize that this is the one that was foretold in ages past. In other words, could these prophecies show us that life is not dictated by random and meaningless events, but by a God who holds history in his hands? Were the works of Jesus the random acts of an ordinary man, or are they the fulfillment of prophecies spoken many years ago? It's interesting that even in the days of Jesus, this was a question that was being wrestled with by everyone who encountered him and the ministry that he came to bring. Even Jesus' own cousin, first cousin, John the Baptist, wrestled with this question of who this Jesus is. Is he this Messiah that was promised through our scriptures centuries ago? In Luke chapter 7, verse 18 to 19, the disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you it? Are you the one? Can you just tell me plainly? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? In John's gospel, we see the crowds asking a similar question of Jesus. In John chapter 10, verse 22 to 24, we find these words. At the time the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Tell us plainly. What, just, would you just come out and say it? Are you the Messiah, the one that we are waiting for? 
In the message that I preached last Sunday, I pointed out how Jesus' parable of the great banquet built on this Old Testament theme of a great feast that God would set before everyone who would be saved one day. And one of the most important passages in the Old Testament that captures this great banquet theme is Isaiah 25. And in Isaiah 25, in verses 8 to 9, we find these words, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And then it says in verse 9, It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And the message is, he's here now, the one we have waited for all these years. What's interesting is that Jesus doesn't give them a direct answer in a way. He doesn't just outright say, yeah, it's me, I'm the Messiah. But he answers it in a little bit of a roundabout way. To his cousin, John the Baptist, He says, and he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. To the crowd at the temple, Jesus answers similarly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name... Bear witness about me. In other words, what Jesus is saying to them is, listen, look at the works I do. Look at my life. Look at what you see from me. And in essence, what he's saying is, is this not evidence enough to you that I do the works of God and that I am the one that has been predicted about throughout the ages as the Messiah? After Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead, we find this story in Luke chapter 24 as he walks with two of his grieving disciples who think that he is now gone forever, dead, killed, one more Messiah who has disappointed them. In verse 13 of Luke 24, it starts, The very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth. A man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body... They came back saying that they had, seen, they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, 
and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. See, Jesus, as he's talking with these confused and depressed disciples, makes this bold claim to say, don't you get it? Everything in the Bible, whether it was the law, whether it's the wisdom literature, the prophets, the Psalms and poetry, the kingdom era, all of these things, everything was ultimately talking about me. And if you could only see that in the very scriptures that you read, you would understand that I am the one that these scriptures were talking about. I don't know how many of you saw this movie, The Sixth Sense. This is an M. Night Shyamalan movie that came out in 1999. Um, It's the story of this psychologist, psychiatrist, who... um, tries to help this young boy who claims to see dead people. Now, the thing about this movie is this. I mean, everyone always focuses on the twist at the end, right? But let me say this. You can watch this entire movie and be clueless to the fact that the color red plays an absolutely critical role to understanding the meaning of what's happening. Uh, In other words... Uh, every time that the color red in this movie shows up, it's revealing an encounter with the world of the dead. And uh, I'm going to guess that almost none of you picked that up if you've watched it for the first time, right? Uh, But once you know this fact and you watch the movie again, um, you see it everywhere. I mean... This color red suddenly becomes noticeable to you. And when you understand the single fact of the color red in the movie, I guarantee you the movie will open up to you in a way that you've never really realized before. I think in a similar way, that's what Jesus was saying to these two men that were walking on that road to Emmaus. He was saying, You're missing that one vital piece of information, which is that everything is about me. Everything is pointing to what I have come on this earth to do. And when you look at the sheer number of prophecies that Jesus filled, it's really remarkable. The prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born, would prophesy in in Isaiah 7, Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child, and you will give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. And as we know, recorded in the Gospels, as it is in Luke 1, 31 to 34, this is what happened with Jesus' mother Mary. It says, you will be with child and give birth to a son, And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And then Mary says to the angel, How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? She says, This cannot be possible because I have never slept with a man. In Genesis, we find out that the line of the Messiah 
will be through the tribe of Judah. Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nation is his. This is a promise of God saying, the line through which this ultimate king will reign is through the tribe of Judah. And when we look at Luke's gospel as he traces the lineage of Jesus' father Joseph, right there in the family tree, we see that Joseph came as a descendant of Judah. Even more specifically, Isaiah tells us that the Messiah would be a descendant of King David. In Isaiah 16, verse 5, In love, a throne will be established. In faithfulness, a man will sit on it. One from the house of David. One who is judging seeks justice. One who in judging seeks justice and speeds the cause of righteousness. And in Matthew's gospel, as he traces the lineage this time through his mother Mary, right there in that family tree, we see that King David is there as one of his ancestors of Jesus. And it also tells us through the prophet Micah, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So it says that his birthplace will be Bethlehem. The only problem is that Jesus' parents aren't from they, they aren't living in Bethlehem. And yet, as many of you know the story, in order to fulfill the commandment of Caesar to enter a registry of the census that was being taken, they had to travel to Bethlehem, Joseph's hometown, in order to register. And right when they arrive, Mary goes into labor. It says in Luke chapter 2, verse 4 to 6, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. So you, you see all of these events unfolding. And you say, can all of this just be coincidence that this is happening in the life of this young baby? You see, once Jesus becomes a man, once he grows up, you can start to make an argument that Jesus did certain things to act like a Messiah because he knew these prophecies existed. So you could say, well, Jesus taught in parables because Isaiah said the Messiah would teach in parables. And so he was just trying to play the role of a Messiah. Or because Jesus knew that God would send a messenger before the Messiah to ready the hearts of the people, you know, he arranged it with his cousin John the Baptist, say, why don't you play that role for me and go out there and be that messenger that was prophesied hundreds of years ago. So you can make those arguments, but when you look at these prophecies, that argument really doesn't hold water, right? Because how could Jesus have arranged his birth in, in, in Bethlehem? And there's many others that he would go to Egypt and come out of Egypt. That he would grow up in Nazareth. And the question is, as a child, there's no way that Jesus could have orchestrated all of that. And so the people see all this. The Jews knew their Bible well. And they're making these observations, these signs that they are seeing. 
of the life of Jesus. And they begin to see his miracles. And they say, maybe this is the one. Maybe he is the one that we have been waiting for all of these years. In fact, in John chapter 6, verse 15, it says, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. You know, they said, we're convinced. We don't need any more arguments. We don't need any more prophecies fulfilled. We have enough evidence. And so on a number of occasions, they decided to force the issue and crown him their king right there and say, there he is, our Messiah. And we shouldn't be surprised when they act this way because in these messianic prophecies, it's clear that when the Messiah would come, he would come to rule as a king. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 4 to 6, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So these were the messages that the Israelites understood is when the Messiah comes, he is coming to reign. He is coming to set everything straight, to make our world a better place, to fix my life, and to solve all of my problems. So let's get on with the show. Let's crown him king. Let's usher in the kingdom. But just as he told his two disciples on that Emmaus road, he said, in your desire to have a king who is going to save the day, you've missed one of the most important messages of the coming king. And it is that he is coming to suffer and to die. One of the greatest messianic passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, verse 3 to 6, we find these words spoken of the coming king. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. As Isaiah's prophecy points out, when people would watch the Messiah suffer, they would look away in horror and disgust. In other words, their interpretation of his suffering is that he's rejected by God. He's a failure. He's a loser. But what Isaiah is saying is that what the witnesses to that suffering fail to recognize is that he was suffering for our sake. He was taking our guilt, our punishment, on himself. It's interesting, even in these suffering prophecies, the amazing level of detail to which Jesus fulfilled these promises that were made hundreds of years ago. In Psalm chapter 69, 
verse 21, it says, They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. And as you may know, the Gospels record that that's exactly what they offered Jesus on the cross, both gall and vinegar. In Psalm 22, verse 16 to 18, it says, Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And as you know, many years before Roman crucifixion was even invented, hundreds of years before that, These prophecies say that the Messiah's hands and feet will be pierced. And as the Gospels also record, the Roman soldiers would take Christ's clothing and divide it up four ways. And when they got to his undergarments, they cast lots to see who would get to keep it. An exact fulfillment of this psalm. In Isaiah 53, verse 9, it says, He was assigned a grave with the wicked. And with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. That's an interesting detail, isn't it? That Isaiah, this prophet who spoke hundreds of years before Jesus, says that he's going to be buried with the rich. And in the Gospels, we find that this man named Joseph from Arimathea, who we're told is a wealthy man, took the body of Jesus and buried him in his own tomb. And ended up fulfilling that prophecy that Jesus would be buried among the wealthy. Now, you may be hearing this and saying, okay, all right, you know, great. There's all this evidence that Jesus fulfilled all these promises and all these predictions that were made about him. But that's not where I want to end with this message this morning. Um, I want to end with this thought. I think for many of us, the hand of God only seems present in our victories. Isn't that true of often the way you think of how life works? Is that God is only present in my victories. But when I suffer, when God doesn't deliver, we assume his absence all too often. But what we can learn from these suffering prophecies is that for God, there is a purpose even in our failures, even in our defeat, even in our pain. Even these darker moments that we are called to endure have a part to play in God's will for our life because that is the life that Jesus himself modeled for us is that his pain was ordained by God as part of his plan. When Jesus on that cross, suffering, cried out in agony and in abandonment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words were ordained by God hundreds of years ago through the mouth of King David in Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? What I'm saying to you this morning is this. Not every child that goes flying off of a sled gets caught by a stranger. 
Not every cancer is cured. Not every car accident is averted. Not every flood victim is rescued. Not every assassin's bullet is stopped. As we saw tragically in Kenya this last week. But the message that the Bible gives us through the life of Jesus is this. Even in the pain, even in the darkness, even when it seems like God is not there, nevertheless, he is orchestrating everything in our lives. I think the truth is for most of us, we see the goal of life as pain avoidance. That's what makes us feel like we're a success, is if we avoided as much pain in this life as possible. But that is not God's ways. God's purpose in your life is so much higher than to get you through this life unscathed, uninjured. But he wants to redeem you and grow you and change you and transform you into the likeness of his son. And in order to accomplish that, sometimes he needs to allow pain to enter your life. In a way, you can say, where is the assurance of that? Where can I possibly have the confidence that in that pain, there is a greater purpose, there is a greater meaning, that God is there? And I think we find it in these closing words of this prophecy of the Messiah in Isaiah 53, in verses 10 through 11. It says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord made his life a guilt offering... He will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. You see, there is a sense in which Jesus' suffering becomes an example for us for us to understand our own suffering. But there is also a sense in which Jesus' suffering is unique compared to anyone else's. He suffered in a way that none of us will ever have to suffer because he took our guilt, our sin, on himself. And because he did that, what Isaiah is saying is, he purchased for us peace with God. This passage, amazingly, is predicting Easter Sunday. Because right here it says, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life. He is not going to die. He will be raised again. And what we also see here, interestingly, is that it says that he will see his offspring. Now, what's interesting is Jesus didn't have any earthly children. But what Isaiah seems to be saying is through that sacrifice, through that suffering, through that death, if you and I believe in Jesus and believe what he has done for us, we become the children that he gives birth to. We become his offspring through whom we have an entirely new hope for this life. It is in this confidence that Paul speaks these words to the Romans in Romans 8, verse 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors 
through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the Easter message. What Paul is saying is he's talking to a group of people that are suffering horribly. He's saying we are like lambs being led to the slaughter. We are being slaughtered out here. And saying, even in the midst of the suffering that you're being asked to do, is there really a message of hope here? Is there really a God that transcends all of this and helps us? And Paul says, undoubtedly yes, because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Because of his death and resurrection, we have peace with God. And we know that because he is for us, everything has meaning. He's not there only in the victories, in the moments of triumph, when that cancer is cured, when that child is rescued, when that person is saved. But even in that valley of the shadow of death, he is there. He's committed to you and has a plan even in that. Let's pray. Even as we celebrate this Easter celebration, and um, I, you know, the truth is it's similar to Christmas, isn't it? That there's this sort of pressure to be happy. You know, it's a happy time. Uh, it's a time when you should rejoice, and we should rejoice. There is good news um, that ought to lead us to rejoicing. And yet, I do wonder if any of you have come this morning uh, with a heavy heart, with a real sense that um, I don't actually have this desire to rejoice because I have pain that hurts me. And I struggle to find God in that place. But I think the life of Jesus helps us to see that what he asked his son to go through when he sent him to this earth, that even his pain was ordained by him, saying, you must suffer these things. You must go through these things by my will. And in that same way, I think we're invited by faith to enter into that same life of trust so that even in the pain, even in the struggle, even when it feels that our prayers are not being answered, there is this fundamental trust that because of what Christ has done for me, I have peace with God, and he is for me. And because he is for me, I am more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ. And that's the Easter hope that I pray that every one of us would experience this morning. Not that everything is going so perfectly in your life. Maybe you are going through that dark shadow in your life right now. But the Easter message is to tell you, have hope that even in that darkness, there is a great light that shines because of what Christ has done. Can I just invite you to take a moment to pray? And in a little bit, our worship team will come to lead us in a time of response uh, to pray and praise Him through these songs of worship. Let's pray.